In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the light, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. With us the last several weeks or months, we've been in the Old Testament, that's the left two-thirds of your Bible, uh, looking specifically at Exodus. So today we move to the New Testament, which is the right one-third of your Bible, and we're going to move into to what we call one of the Gospels. Why do we call these first four books of the New Testament Gospels? Because the word gospel means good news, and it's good news that Jesus came into the world. So Jesus, the Gospels are about the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's good news, and so we call them Gospels. The word gospel also refers more narrowly to what we, the, specifically what we need to believe to be saved. We need to trust in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection to save us. So that's that's the, the narrow meaning of gospel. Often when we direct people to new believers or, or even unbelievers to um, the Bible, to, to find a book in the Bible that they can read, we direct them to John's gospel. So why do we do that? Because it seems to be the simplest gospel to understand the Christian faith. At least it seems to be. John uses what, what appears to be simple language in much of his book. His gospel may be the clearest in laying out how we may be saved through faith in Jesus. In fact, he tells us this is his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written that you may know that Jesus, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John often takes some of the deepest truths and communicates them in very simple language. Today's text is one of those prime examples of this. So we, we read from you the, what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses. We're going to focus just on the first five verses today because there's so much there. We can't um, do the whole thing today. And you might think that because John says his purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that that's only for people who don't know Jesus yet, but it's really also for believers to sustain and strengthen their faith, to go deeper with him. So there's something here for everybody. The first 18 verses, as I said, are called the prologue. 
what these verses are doing is answering this question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? In starting this way, John isn't keeping it a, secret, a secret for the end. He's telling us up front who, who Jesus is. He just gets right to it. He doesn't waste any time. He goes, right up front, I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. He doesn't mess around at all. I hope and pray that even if you have read these, these words dozens of times, we can hear these with fresh ears and fresh hearts. So I'm going to pray that right now for us. Father, we come to your word. We, you say that you'll look to these people, those who humbly are humble before you and tremble at your word. So give us hearts that react to these amazing truths, hearts that worship, hearts that are astounded by your greatness and the glory of, of Christ, who he is. We hear these things, Father, with fresh ears, fresh hearts, through your spirit. Help me to communicate them in a way that we can grasp them. We ask these things in, in Jesus' great name. Amen. So verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Six right, takes us right back to Genesis 1, and he does it by design. He takes us back where no gospel writer has gone before. So the Gospel of Mark begins with John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to start to begin his ministry. The Gospel of Matthew takes us back to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke takes us back to Adam, the first person. John says, I need to take it back further. I need to go all the way back to the beginning. In fact, before creation, he takes us all the way back to the time before creation. In the beginning was the Word, he says. Before earth was created, there was the Word. Now, the, the word for word here in the Greek is logos. You've probably heard that word before. And logos means... In the Greek mind, it, it was like in philosophy and in their religion, a, um, a word that meant order and a principle of reason, a unifying principle for all things. And in Hebrew thought, the word of God in the Old Testament was his powerful revelation of himself in creation, how he created the world, and his per- also the re- revealing of his plans and purposes and accomplishing salvation. So God's word was powerful. It's closely related to the concept of wisdom and Torah, so wisdom in, in Proverbs 8 is personified as having a role in creating the world. And Torah means teaching, so teaching God's will in the, in the Old Testament. So word was a very significant word, both for the Greeks and for Jews as well. But John is using this, this word logos, or word, not to talk about an eternal principle or not to talk about just God's word per se, but he's talking about this word who was in the beginning with God. He says the word was God, and the word was with God. And when he says the word, we get the, the word being with God, that we can handle that, but when he says the word was God, then we start wondering, how, how does this happen? How do you have a word that was both with God and was God at the same time? It is crazy. Yeah. I hope you get that. And because his words are so condensed, the only, the only way that I can come up with a main idea, so ladies who are studying Hebrews, the shared truth, the main idea, is this up here on the screen. I think we'll get it there in a minute. Yeah. So here's what it, the Word was with God. The Word was God. Made everything, and in Him was life, the, the light of men. That's the best way I can sum up this, this dense passage with these condensed truths. Another reason we, that is because Christ was and is God's ultimate Word. So 
the final and climactic revelation of God to his people. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And literally, in the, in the Greek, it just says by son, like he, son talk. So God communicates to us in son language through his son. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We'll see this a lot in this gospel, that, that Jesus is the ultimate of many things in the Old Testament. And also, he calls uh, Jesus the word. Because God is communicating God. He always, in, in, from all eternity past, he, he communicated within the Trinity. And to his people now, he communicates. He's a God who reveals himself. So we shouldn't be surprised we have Bibles. Because God is a communicating God. And he's going to make sure we know what his word is. So how can the word be both with God and be God at the same time? How can that be? Never has so much truth about Christ been compressed into such a brief statement. You could say it this way. What God was, the Word was. What God was, the Word was. In essence, God and the Word are one. Whatever you could say about God, you could say about the Word. I like the way the Net Bible translates it. The Word was fully God. The Word was fully God, nothing less. Jesus will never quit being the Word. You'll see this in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, it talks about Christ returning on a white horse to defeat his enemies and to set up his kingdom. And it says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So that sticks all the way to his return. Back in John 1.1, he doesn't say God was the word, but the word was God. Why is that important? Because if he said God was the Word, he would be saying that they're, they're just the same, they're identical. But when he says the Word was with God and the Word was God, he's saying that God and the Word both share the same nature or essence as God, but they are not identical. So that even though they, are, they share the same nature or essence as the one God, yet God and the Word were with one another. They, in other words, they had, they had a face-to-face relationship. But they were not identical. That's why after he says the word was God, he comes back in verse 2 and kind of repeats himself. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. Now, one thing we see there is he introduces a personal pronoun. So in case you thought the word was just a, like an eternal principle, the word is a he. The word is, is, a, is a person. He was with God in the beginning. Because we don't see that Jesus was, um, that it's Jesus until verse 14. The Jesus God's son, and he's not told us the word is Jesus Christ until verse 17. So he holds that out on us, but we, we see that he is a he. The apostle John was a Jew, and he was raised on Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is one God. If there's one thing every Jew knows, it's there's only one God. So if John is going to tell them that there's two people out there, two persons who are called God, he's kind of taking a risk. If he's trying to win over Jews, he's, he's taking a risk by, by saying that. He had to know this, this Jesus, who was a man also, that he hung out with for three years, was really God. He had to be totally convinced of that, to say that, to his Jewish um, critics who would be opposed to Jesus. This man, Jesus, was God. 
and that God was still one. He had to know that. He was God, but God is still one. There's not two gods. In Colossians 2.9, we see, In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How can that be? The whole God is in Jesus, in, in his body. The whole of God's being is in Jesus. Not just a piece of God, not just a fragment of God, but the whole God in Jesus Christ. So at this point, we've got to be astounded and stunned. Your, your brain should be going on tilt. Because we, we just can't, we can't make this make sense to our human minds. In fact, this verse here, these first verses in 1 through 18, are really one of the main passages in Scripture by which Christians have, have been convinced that Jesus is God, to make that claim. It's why we believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. We don't see, we don't see the Spirit until later in John, but... But uh, we, we, I'll, I'll show you a picture of the Trinity up here on the screen. We have a, tr- a graphic that will show you the, what Trinity is. So, okay, there you go. You've never seen the Trinity before? Here it is on screen. So it's saying this, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father and vice versa. But the Son is God. The, Holy, the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So we teach these things. And people reject it because they, they, it doesn't make sense. Well, of course, we can't comprehend it. It's not irrational. It's just, un- it's just incomprehensible. The difference between being irrational and incomprehensible. So Muslims say they hate this because they think it means three gods. They don't believe Jesus was God. And they, they say the Trinity is three gods. So you can't. That's wrong. And so when it's claimed that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, we have to say, no, they don't. Because Muslims don't worship Jesus as God, and they, they, they worship a monopersonal God. We worship a tripersonal God. So they're not the same God. Did Jesus believe he was equal with God? We'll see in several ways in this gospel that he does. One passage for now. In John 5, to 23, Jesus says this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, which is an incredible statement. You, if you don't honor the Son in the same way you honor the Father, you don't honor God at all. So you can't say, well, I worship God as God, but I don't worship Jesus as God. No, Jesus says you have to, you have to worship God and, and Jesus the very same way. Otherwise, you can't say you worship God. Have you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door? So they say that Jesus was a God. They have a translation that puts the word a in there. And if you know how John uses the Greek, and in context, it's not a, a good translation. But you don't have to know Greek in order to, to show them that Jesus is God. And I'll show you in a few minutes how, how you can do that. <clears throat> Verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him not, was not anything made that was made. So another reason John takes us back to Genesis 1 just as in Genesis 1, where everything that came into being did so because of God's spoken word. So here, this person, this word, created everything that is. So Jesus, before he was Jesus, created the universe. All things were made through him. So if if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says, Jesus was a God, he wasn't God, he was a God, here's how you talk to them. Be kind, pray, and then... um, you say, look, in, in this verse 
3 of John 1, it says, all things were made through him. So the Jehovah's Witnesses might say, well, God used Jesus to make everything, but he created Jesus. Jesus was a, a high being, but they believe he's the Archangel Michael, really. Uh, but, but God created Jesus, and, and then Jesus created everything. But what you see here in the second part of this verse is what makes that wrong. What he says is, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, you could translate it this way. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Anything that fits in the made category, uh, Jesus made. If it was made, Jesus made it. Jesus could not make himself, so it had to be, he has to be God, because he created everything that was made. He belongs to the not created category. So when your child asks you, who made God, how do you answer that? You tell them, God was always there. Nobody made God. By definition, God always, always was there. I remember when one of my daughters was just, her mind was blown with that. It was, it was Emily, actually. You were just a little girl, and, and you were saying, God, I don't get that. That's just, uh, you were stunned by the truth, and that's good. Because how can God, everything else we know has been made, except God. And this truth is not just taught in John. It's taught in Hebrews chapter 1. We go back to Hebrews chapter 1 again at the beginning. In Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of his glory, of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's amazing. And Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were, made, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made, created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. The reason the universe doesn't just fly apart right now, the reason everything is still, you, you still look like yourself and you're not melting into something else, is because Jesus is keeping you that way. Jesus' power holds everything together. Another reason John takes us back to Genesis 1, creation, is that Jesus is the head of the new creation. He is the beginning of the new creation, making us new cre cre creations spiritually until he makes all things new in the resurrection with new bodies and a new heaven and new earth. As he says in Revelation 21.5, this is not on the screen, but he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Jesus is making everything new. So he's the, he's the creator of the new creation as well as the old. So he's, we meet him in that way here. We can trust such a God with, with everything because God is creator. The word is our creator. He knows just what his creation, his people need. It was said of Charles Steinmetz, the mechanical genius and friend of Henry Ford, that he could build a motor in his mind, and if it broke down, he could fix it in his mind. So when he designed it and it actually built it, it, actually, it ran with precision. One day, the assembly line in the Ford plant broke down. None of Ford's men could, could fix it, so they called Steinmetz in. He tinkered for a few minutes, 
and threw the switch and it, it ran. A few days later, Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000. Ford wrote back and said, hey, Charlie, isn't this a bit high for just a little tinkering? So then he, later, he sent a revised bill that said, tinkering, $10, knowing where to tinker, $9,990. <laughs> so we are not the result of time plus matter plus random chance. We are created by a God who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and knows how to fix things. He can fix your broken life. He's able. In fact, what we need most of all to be fixed is the fact that we have death. We need new life. So in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him the word was life. In the word was life. Life was not something the word created. Life does not exist apart from, from the word. Life was in him. Just as he eternally existed, just as God could not not exist, so the, the word alone had life in himself. As he says in John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So as a man, the Father granted things to Jesus that he had from all eternity by nature. But he always had life in himself as the Word. The only reason there is any life in the universe is because in God the Word was life. In fact, he refers to himself as the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in the resurrection, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the life. I don't just have life. I am the life. John is focused on the new life because uh, that the Word brings because he's concerned about people having eternal life. So that's what he's really talking about here. And we... We need spiritual life because we're, we're dead spiritually. So what, what's that talking about? Well, John 5.24, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's not coming to judgment, but has passed from death to life. When our first parents sinned, they and their descendants entered a state of spiritual death. What's, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean? It means you have no ability to have a love relationship with God. It means you can't respond to God, truly. You're alienated from him. That's what spiritual dead, deadness means. Sometimes we talk to about a broken relationship. We say, I'm dead to him, or she's dead to me. God had told the first man and woman, in the day you sin against me, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, that's dying you shall die. You shall die spiritually right away, and then you'll eventually die physically. This is why Jesus says in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. What is, what is eternal life? What is it? Not just living a really long time, but eternal life is that they know you, they have a relationship with you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Every human being is born in, spiritually dead. So the greatest need of every person on earth is eternal life. Having eternal life just doesn't mean you live forever. It means you will have a, a, a new capacity for a loving relationship with God. That's why John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what's that mean? I mean, John, you keep giving us these, these simple words, but, but you don't tell us what they mean, so I'll help. Do my best. So what does it mean to say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men? Until you have the life that is in the word, 
God's Son, you don't have light. You can't see God's truth. That's the problem. You're blind to spiritual truth. You can't see it. You need the light in Christ to be able to see God's truth. You can't see the reality of God and his ways. You need the light that comes only from the life that is in the word. It's like you said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you need a new birth that gives you new life. You can see the kingdom of God and the realities of it. You need a new life that results from a new birth in order to see the, king, the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, you only have the light of life in following Jesus. Following Jesus is the only way not to live in darkness. That's why John says what he does in verse 5. Here we have another sentence, like, what do we do with this? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, it seems on the surface to make sense, but what's he talking about there? Again, back to Genesis 1, the first words out of God's mouth in, John, in Genesis 1-3 were, let there be light. There was darkness over the unformed earth, and he said, let there be light, and so there was light. So why does John say that, what he does in verse 5? There is a spiritual darkness in the world that needs to be overcome in God's new creation. John tells us this light that was in God's word shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some versions say, like the New American Standard and the old, older NIV says, the darkness has not understood it. It's a valid translation. The word can mean either one, because the word essentially means grasp. You can't grasp it in understanding it. You can't grasp it to overcome it. But the way that he talks about it in the, rest of the whole rest of the gospel, it's more of an issue of conflict between light and darkness, not, not uh, understanding it. So I think the better translation is overcome. How do we see this conflict happening today? In John 3, 19, 21, gives us a peek at that. John 3, 19, 21. This is the judgment. The light, the word, Jesus, has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their words were their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this is the battlefield for light and darkness, the battle for people's hearts. Do you love darkness because it covers up your deeds? Or do you love the light because it shows that God is at work in your life? That's the question we all have to answer. It's interesting that the tense of overcome in verse 5 is the past tense. You say, okay, great. What's so great about that? I mean, you can only be saved if if your grammar works. You need good grammar to be saved. I I hope that is encouraging to you. What it means is it's already happened. This overcoming has already happened. You might expect that because John writes, the light shines, present tense, ongoing in the darkness. He says that the light shines now in the darkness. You might think that he would say, but the darkness has not, will not overcome the light, or does not overcome the light. But what he says is the darkness, ha- the light has overcome the darkness. 
at the cross and in the resurrection is where this happened. This is where light defeated darkness. That's why he says it's already happened. It's already done deal. Light's already won. Darkness is defeated. Jesus defeated darkness on the cross, and his resurrection proved he, he got victory. So the conflict between light and darkness is not one between two equal powers. We don't live in a dualistic Star Wars universe, sorry, with the light side, the force, and the dark side, in which the outcome is only known to the, to the uh, script writers. The darkness has lost the battle already. Even a little light overcomes darkness. So the light keeps shining on in the darkness so that people can receive the already accomplished victory of the light of the one in whom is life, who was, who was and is the life. We need to not have fearful hearts and hopeless attitudes because of the prevalence of the darkness of the times we live in. Many people are just so burdened that we have, there's so many dark things going on that you're depressed and discouraged. It's easy to get there, but the darkness will not win. It's already defeated. If you have the light of life that comes through the word, the darkness cannot overtake you. If you join the dark side, you've already lost. You join the losing team. So Snoke is foolish. If you follow Star Wars, he's already lost. Great. <laughs> so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while, a little while longer. This is John 12, 35, 36. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. And that word overtake is the same word that's in verse 5, overcome. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So if you have believed in Jesus Christ, the word, you have life, which is the light that, that has overcome the darkness. You have eternal life from the word, who was always with God and who was and is God, who made everything that has been made, who holds everything together, who has defeated death and darkness. No matter how dark your circumstances get, you already have victory over them through this eternal word. And so again, the summary of this is the word was with God and was God, made everything, and in him was life, the light of men. This is the shared truth you should take away and put your trust and hope in. So that's what this table is all about. The word who made everything, who holds you together, is presented this meal for all who believe in him, who, are, who have become children of light through trusting in him. If you are a truster, a lover of Jesus Christ, then come join in this meal. Bread, representing his body. Cup, of, representing his blood. It's for you to, to prepare your hearts to receive and to know that Jesus is for you. He's not against you. If you're in his light, you have life in him that comes, in you that comes from him. If you've not yet done that, if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, you don't have his life in you or his light, then that's something to consider. If you're not there, then this meal is not something you should have because this meal is saying you believe that. So if you do believe it, great. 
join it. If not, then believe. I mean, that's what it says. Very simple. And what you, what you should do is come up, take the bread, dip it in, take it back to your seat, consider before Jesus how, what he's done for you. So we'll pray and prepare our time. There will be people up here to pray for you, whether during the time of worship we have or whether after the service as well. People will be here to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, your word, Jesus, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as our joints and marrow, to the deepest recesses of our hearts, our spirit, our minds. We thank you, Father, for the word who was with you in the beginning, who is you, and who revealed himself to us as Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you would cause us to hunger and thirst more and more for him. We ask you would cause us to see, to be a people who are hope-filled because his light is overcoming and has overcome the darkness. We ask, Father, for your strength to, to have that hope in him. I do pray, Father, for anybody here who has not yet seen that only in Jesus, Jesus is the life and you can only have eternal life in him. You would show in their hearts, you would shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the good news of the glory of Christ into their hearts. They, may, they, they might see he's worth trusting and in him alone is life. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We ask that your name be glorified in this time as we continue our worship and as we take these elements that Jesus, Jesus invites us to receive. We ask these things in his great name. Amen. <laughs>